Welcome to the Coin Podcast Network. Everywhere you look, climate change and the catastrophes that come with it are front page news. Our front page news. Global warming has entered our lexicon, and the planet we call home is in trouble. The effort to stem the tide is the fight of this generation and a fight for all future generations. future generations. In September 2021, the COIN Podcast Network took an in-depth look at the problems associated with human-caused global temperature increase. Now it's time to talk about solutions. My name is Ian Costello, and I'm deeply concerned about the damage we are doing to our environment. So I'm on a mission to explore the developing technology that could save us from ourselves before it is too late. Before it is too late. You are listening to Climate in Crisis on the Coin Podcast Network. During our original series on climate change, a term popped up a couple of times, carbon capture. It was a term that I hadn't heard before. For me, it instantly invoked images of men in hazmat suits swinging butterfly nets in the air, trying to catch an invisible gas. Since that obviously isn't the case, I reached out to David Heldebrandt, chief scientist and researcher at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Richland, Washington, to find out more. What David told me is fascinating. He explained how taxpayer-funded research into a technology almost a century old has led to the development of a system to capture dangerous carbon before it enters the atmosphere what it will take to implement it at scale, and how it could aid in the fight against human-caused climate change. Here is my conversation about carbon capture with David Heldebrandt. So to start with, sir, and thanks again for joining me, can you give me a quick run of your bona fides, who you are and what it is you do? All right. My name is David Heldebrandt. I am a chief scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory here in Richland, Washington. I've been here for 15 years, and I've been working in the field of carbon capture and utilization for the past 19 years, including four years of my PhD. I run seven projects for the Office of uh, Fossil Energy and Office of Science from the U.S. Department of Energy with respect to carbon capture technologies. So this has basically been my life's work. How did you get interested in it? So when I was in grad school, my advisor was a green chemist, so uh, the environmental chemist trying to make things much more energy and uh, cost efficient. And so I fell in love with doing work there, and a lot of what he was working on was CO2 utilization. And so most of my degree was on making CO2 into valuable materials such that we can at least minimize the amount of CO2 that was going out. And then it just sort of transitioned after I came to PNNL. We started having some projects looking into new materials for carbon capture, and so I proposed some of the stuff that I'd worked on for my graduate studies, and the rest has just kind of taken off from there. A lot of the research I've done when I Google you and try and find out a little bit more about you, the words green chemistry come up quite a bit. Can you give me the Cliff's Notes explanation of what green chemistry is? So it's basically trying to make things much more efficient and a lot less toxic at the same time. So the great thing about it is try to use things uh, in the minimal amount of waste as possible, try to use the minimal amount of energy as possible, and basically make sure that your reagents and the process you're doing is not going to have any environmental problems. So it's just basically trying to make things as simple and as safe and as cheap as possible. As far as I know, from what I learned, at least in freshman biology, most 
every life on Earth is a carbon-based light form, but when it comes to climate change, carbon, and specifically carbon emissions, are the biggest factor in driving global temperature increase. David, can you explain to me what the difference is between the good carbon we are made out of and the bad carbon that is causing global warming? So it's the same carbon molecules. Uh, essentially, carbon dioxide is absorbed by plants. It gets constituted into sugars, which we use for fuel and part of our daily life cycle. So it's just the form of the CO2 that's coming out. Just large concentrations of it absorb heat, just like a greenhouse effect that we all are familiar with from high school biology. When you have things that trap in heat, of course, things are just going to eventually start warming up on us. What is the main source of that carbon, the carbon that is causing global temperature increase? And beyond that, what are some of the sources we may not be generally as familiar with that aren't as common as car exhaust? Right now, probably the biggest source is energy production, right? Where we don't necessarily have renewables to power everything in the United States. So we rely on fossil fuels, whether it's coal, whether it's gas, whether it's oil, all of those things, when we burn them to make power, that gives off an exhaust. So just like your transportation sector, when you drive a car, your exhaust pipe is putting out carbon dioxide. And the more fuels that we burn, the more energy that we're using is putting out more and more CO2 into the atmosphere. So things like our cars, shipping, uh, transportation, aviation, anytime we fly somewhere, there's a large uh, CO2 footprint, but also things like uh, manufacturing, uh, making things like steel. When we heat up the iron in order to get it ready, we kick off a lot of CO2 to power those furnaces. Making cement, we have to kick off CO2 to activate the binding agents in cement. So there's a lot of things that give off CO2 in our daily lifestyles that we just don't necessarily think about. We've known for the better part of the last century that carbon emissions are increasing, and we can certainly see when you study weather data and climate data a correlation with hotter average temperatures. If carbon emissions or excess carbon emissions are bad, the logical solution then is to reduce them or get rid of them. And if I understand, that's where your work and research comes in. Can you give me a 50,000-foot overview, the general idea of what somebody means when they say the words carbon capture? So a lot of my work is focused on capturing carbon dioxide from large uh, point sources. So things like coal-fired power plants, natural gas power plants. It may be adapted to cement kilns and, and steel mills. Essentially, you have a large exhaust pipe coming off of something that's burning fuel to create heat and energy for the process that it's doing. And it's essentially like the muffler that you put on your car. We're putting on something that's going to be on the back end that will be able to selectively pull about 90% of that carbon dioxide out of that gas stream so that it doesn't get to the atmosphere. So it's a very challenging thing chemically, energetically, and, and on cost. I really like that example of the car muffler. So if I'm looking at a cement kiln or a power plant and you do see one of these big exhaust pipes coming off of it, is this something that would look like, in essence, a muffler that slaps onto that? Or is it something much more internal? So it's going to be much more complex than that. And so most of the challenges is all these coal-fired plants already exist. And so these things have to be bolt-on units. So they're not really integrated as a part of the power plant on its initial design, at least not yet. And so we're essentially retrofitting these things. So essentially. It would be like a bolt-on unit, a couple of buildings, a couple of towers, and a whole bunch of process infrastructure in order to divert that exhaust before it makes its way out and it gets treated. We're mostly talking about newly produced carbon emissions that you're trying to capture here, collecting output, not trying to collect carbon that is already in the atmosphere. 
Correct. And there's a big distinction between that. There is negative emission technology, such as direct air capture, where it's trying to take the CO2 in the atmosphere when it's around 420 parts per million, which is you know, trying to grab 420 marbles out of a million. It's a lot more difficult than what we're trying to do at point sources, which are large concentrated streams, which have 15,000 marbles. So it's a lot easier to try to stop those from getting out in the first place at a higher concentration than it is to try to suck them out from the atmosphere, which is a completely different uh, type of carbon capture. Drilling down a little bit more on the actual specifics of the technology, how does your process actually capture carbon? The way that we do it is a liquid-based treatment. So it's basically using chemicals that we've made and designed in-house here. Uh, Nothing is really proprietary or secret. Everything is paid for by U.S. tax dollars. So of course, we want that to be available to the American taxpayer. But in essence, what we're doing is capturing CO2 with the liquid. And so the way to think of it is carbon dioxide is known as an acid gas, right? We've heard of sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides. Carbon dioxide is also an acid gas, which is why it's tart when you drink soda pop and carbonated beverages. And so the easiest way to chemically react an acid is to react it with a base. And that's essentially what we do is we have this chemical that goes in and scavenges the CO2 out of that gas stream makes a chemical bond with it, that acid-base reaction gives off heat, which is how we're able to pull it out in the first place. But because the sorbent is more expensive than the carbon dioxide we're trying to separate, we can't just capture it and throw it away. So we need to reactivate it, and that requires reversing that heat of reaction. So we basically then have to boil the CO2 out of these liquids. So essentially, you have an absorption unit where the, the gas is going through a liquid, and then on the other side, we boil that carbon dioxide out, and then the CO2 is transported wherever it's going to go, whether it's sequestered or utilized. So the technology we have is essentially a liquid that just heats and cools, heats and cools, heats and cools, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, at about 4 million liters of liquid an hour per power plant. Reusable liquid that you're just cycling through over and over and over again. Correct. I want to jump off from something you said a minute ago. Once the carbon is captured, can you explain how it is contained and then what becomes of it? What do we do with it? So right now, uh, the leading thoughts are compress it into somewhat of a liquid state at about 2,200 pounds per square inch of pressure. So basically, the carbon dioxide would liquefy, and then they put it into pipelines. So my technology is not necessarily on what's done after the fact, but as a part of the capture and compression and condensing, That's all a part of what we do, and then it is handed off to other researchers who would either permanently store it underground or use it for things like enhanced oil recovery, where they inject it into the ground and use that pressure of CO2 to force oil back out of the wells. So there's multiple things that you can do with it, but the most economical way to transport it is in this liquefied, pressurized state. Is it safe? Yes. It's no different than us piping natural gas and oil pipelines. The analogy that I can give people is right now we have natural gas reservoirs sitting under us all throughout the continental United States. We have no problem sitting on top of a flammable gas that can potentially cause explosions. But when we put CO2 under the same reservoir, we now magically would be scared of it. So that's just one thing that doesn't necessarily make sense to me, that we're okay sitting on flammable gas, but not inflammable CO2. What are some of the uses you envision this captured carbon being able to be used for? We have a couple of programs that we're working on for the Department of Energy to reconstitute it into things like renewable methane, uh, methanol as a chemical or as a potential fuel source, and then other things like building materials. There's a lot of people, not just us, but globally, that are looking ways to monetize the CO2. And part of the reason is, right now, capturing the CO2 and burying it requires, at the best economic projections, around $60 to $70 a metric ton. So 
nobody's paying anybody to store the CO2. So if we can reconstitute it into something that could be sold for a profit, that would then be able to pay for the capture unit to be installed in the first place. So we're indifferent to what CO2 can be made, but it needs to at least be profitable and it needs to be done at scales that actually can have a meaningful impact on reducing the amount of CO2. Obviously, you're an advocate of it, but as a whole, does the process work? How do you go about measuring your success? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, again, it's because we're, we're funded by the American taxpayer. Anytime that we can say that we've done commercialization of our technology and transferred that to industry for adoption, we would define that as our success, right? Because that's what we are funded to do. If we can actually see one of these technologies actually be deployed at a real carbon capture plant, I would define that as success. Is that just a matter of time? Yes, we are currently working with uh, partners at the Electric Power Research Institute and RTI International, and we are currently making 2,000 gallons of our liquid, and we are going to the National Carbon Capture Center, which is a small coal facility in Alabama, where they're actually going to test our material in operation for a period of six months to determine how well it'll work. And that's going to be done at a half a megawatt scale, which is about one one hundredth of the scale of any of these power plants. So. We'll know in a couple of years how well it's working out and whether or not it would be primed for larger scale adoption. When we come back, more on measuring the success of carbon capture and how this green technology could mean big bucks. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW, a full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Cannabis. Cannabis. Less than 10 years ago, it was trafficked in the shadows. Today, you get a receipt with your purchase. I'm Travis Box. Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry. The activists. The medical professionals. The legislators. The economists. The regulators. Where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? It's the Mainstream Weedia Podcast. Coming this November. To the COIN Podcast Network. The COIN 6 Weather Team has the most accurate forecast in town. Certified by Weather Rate. Coin 6 Weather, watching out for you. Do you envision a way that this carbon capture technology could be a very valuable weapon in the fight against climate change? Well, I would like to think that if this technology is available while these coal fired and natural gas powered plants are in existence, that yes, we should be able to achieve a high degree of capture of that CO2 and limit the amount of emissions that are going out. Right now we're targeting 90%, which is a target set by the Department of Energy, but I believe we're seeing instances where people are asking for 97, 98, maybe even 99% of that captured CO2 so it doesn't get out into the atmosphere. One of the things we ran across in our series identifying the problem of global climate change is this idea that there is an opportunity for investment and an opportunity for economic boom here. I know you're based in a government lab, but do you see carbon capture technology as being a potential financial boom, whether it's 10, 20, or 50 years down the road? The best answer I can give you is there are venture capitalists and investment firms that are really looking at clean energy tech right now. They exist. And honestly, if I had the answer, I would be selling it to them. (laughs) (laughs) So 
believe me, there's a lot of people that believe that 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 market would exist. I just want to be able to get these technologies available such that they can get commercialized. David, thanks for spending some time with me. I've just got a couple more questions and thoughts. What's your favorite part about this technology? What's your favorite part about carbon capture technology? Well, I like to think about it as uh, the work that my team has done all the way down from the molecular level all the way to full-scale projections, right? This isn't just, uh, we had an idea, you know, write it on a napkin. It was 15 years of continued refinement working with our teams, you know, all the way down, you know, small molecules and everything. And it's been really fun to kind of watch it progress and, and make its way through this kind of stages to the point where we think that the training wheels now will be coming off of our technology and it's, it's going to get adapted. And so I think that's probably uh, the most fun about it is the fact that engineers have had this technology for 90 years. In fact, the first patent for liquid-based carbon capture was patented in 1930. So we have this 19th century chemistry that's still being used, even though the engineering's made it to the 21st century. So for us to go back and challenge 90 years of convention and say, hey, we can go and reinvent what goes on the inside of that engineering. And 15 years ago, people kind of laughed at us and said, no, that's not going to work. We don't think that this can happen. We know 90 years of chemistry will do this. And we said, well, no, we can make it better. And so for me, that's the most uh, prideful thing is the fact that we actually challenged that 90 years of convention. And we believe that we have the best technology out there. Anything concern you about it? Well, I think the biggest concern that I have is being able to manufacture this. I said that a single emission treatment system that we would be building for, let's say, a 550 megawatt power plant would require 4 million liters of liquid to be running an hour. And there's thousands of power plants on the planet. You can do the math. Are we going to have enough chemicals to even manufacture these materials? So right now, I think that is the biggest concern. Do we have enough chemical manufacturing capability to make these things? And the answer is we don't know yet. Long range, if this technology proves to be as successful as you would like to see it become, is this a kind of technology that then could be applied to capturing other greenhouse gases? Yes, actually, uh, that's where we actually started in this field was looking at other uh, acid gases like sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide. And in fact, our solvent actually will pick those up chemically. And we're looking at other ways to actually do sort of like a co-capture of pretty much all of the acid gases coming out of these uh, smokestacks. I am curious if I've missed anything here during our discussion. Is there anything we didn't cover on kind of this general introduction to this science that you think needs to be mentioned or talked about? Probably the ultimate irony being that probably by the time these technologies are ready for market by the year 2030, most of the power plants probably be shuttled by the time uh, we move into the renewable space. So it's, it's kind of a race against time. And so that's, I think, time is of the essence is the main argument that I'd like to make. I appreciate your time, sir. Oh, thank you for interviewing me. Happy to talk. The Coin Podcast Network is your home for on-demand coverage of local news, sports, weather, and entertainment you won't find anywhere else. You can always find us on coin.com slash podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.